You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. There's a tiny blue-ringed octopus which lives in some tidal pools in Australia that contains enough neurotoxin to kill 20 people. There are at least 10 extremely venomous species of snake on that continent. The box jellyfish is one of the most venomous sea animals you're likely to encounter. There are spiders there large enough to catch small birds. And yet, if you could believe the stories, the most dangerous creature of all looks like a cuddly koala bear. All the way up until the point when it drops from the trees, incapacitates you, and begins to suck your life's blood out. G'day, mate. It's time to talk about drop bears. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In today's episode, we're joined by three researchers who are going to share their interesting work on a legendary creature of Australia, the drop bear. Unlike some of the more famous cryptids in the lore down under, such as the Yowie or the Bunyip, to truly find the drop bear, one must first place one's tongue firmly in one's cheek. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to share a little news and a correction. I recently had a chance to be on the very popular podcast, Beyond the Darkness, which is the podcast spinoff of Dave Schrader and Tim Dennis's long-running radio show, Darkness Radio. I've made a shortcut if you'd like to check out that show. It's streaming for free at bit.ly forward slash btdmonstertalk, all lowercase. That's bit.ly btdmonstertalk. It's all one word. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you've reached our show after hearing me on that show, I'd like to say welcome, and I hope you'll check out some of our back catalog of Monsters in Science. Also, a quick correction from our last episode. I mistakenly called Stephen King's short story collection, which contains the story Jerusalem's Lot, Graveyard Shift. But that's actually the name of a story in the collection. The actual book is titled Night Shift. A link to that is in the show notes for that episode, in case you want to join in with your own opinion of Scott Poole's and my own argument about whether or not Jerusalem's Lot is a Lovecraft pastiche. Today's episode, though, is all about drop bears. And we've had many listeners over the years ask us to talk about these animals. Karen, who herself hails from down under, arranged our interview with Rian Morgan, Catherine Livingston, and Felice Goldfinch the authors of a fun academic paper titled 
man-eating teddy bears of the scrub, exploring the Australian drop bear urban legend. A link to that paper will be in the show notes, and I think it's a fun read. I hope you'll check it out, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Monster Dog. Should we do some sort of roundtable introduction? Like, yeah, yeah, okay. sounds good. Let's do Rian first, and then Felice, and then Kat. Okay, um, so uh, my name is Rian Morgan, and I'm actually originally from the UK. Um, moved out to Australia in 2007 um, when I started my master's research. Um, I'm now an anthropologist um, specializing in the areas of digital anthropology and digital literacy. So I currently teach digital literacy subject um, as well as doing some digital anthropology on the side where I've looked previously at um, online gaming and game cultures and then more recently moving into social media and the construction of Australian culture online really through um, this drop bear paper. And Felice? Um, I've been at JSU since I started my uh, undergraduate degree. I did anthropology and archaeology and I'm now an archaeologist. Um, I suppose my fields would be Australian archaeology, um, rock art, as well as um, community-based archaeology, particularly in Australia, because they seem to work differently here than um, overseas. Um, and that's probably it for me. Cool. Thanks. Um, and um, I'm Catherine Livingston, or Kat. Um, I have also been at UN, at JCU since um, I started my undergrad, um, and this is my second. This was my second undergraduate from James Cook University as well. Um, I'm now an archaeologist and um, specialising particularly in Southeast Asian metals, actually. <laughs> um, but still with, uh, I'm still very passionate about the anthropology, in particular, um, looking at folklore and um, in specific, you know, specifically weird urban legends and, and whatnot. Yeah. So Great. You, would you say Southeast Asian metals, or do you mean like... Um like at the metallurgical level or like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, I'm um, actually doing my PhD in archaeometallurgy, um, working with a very specific um, artifact assemblage that has been um, recovered at the site that we're working in, say, Pornia. Neat. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Very interesting. So the, the reason we have you guys on the show today, uh, for we've been doing this show since 2009, and we've had so many requests over the years to talk about drop bears. And uh, I came across your paper. I think someone had shared it on Twitter, uh, and that's Men Eating Teddy Bears, Bears of the Scrub, Exploring the Australian Drop Bear Urban Legend. And this is in an issue of uh, eTropic the eTropic Journal, which is on uh, urban vampires and other blood-sucking monstrosities. So uh, we thought we'd get you on the show, and um, you guys would be perfect to talk about this topic. We're really excited. What inspired you to join together and, and write a paper about drop bears? Well, personally, for me, it was when Kat and Felice showed up in my office and <laughs> said, do you want to write a paper on drop bears? Um, but I think it came about as we found out about the special issue, and discovered that this was something that nobody had really written about previously in a serious academic context. Um, the drop bear, I think, is it really is a sort of quintessential Australian manifestation of the vampire motif, um, the only one that we've really come across. And I think that was the sort of inspiration to, to look at this topic from an Australian perspective. Um, and when Kat and Felice approached me, asked me if I wanted to be part of this, um, bringing along the article from Australian Geographic um, that I was actually have been using in my subject for a number of years um, in order to teach students about digital literacy and how they need to be wary of content that they find on the internet. Mm -hmm. So that was my own intro. Apart from this, the fact that um, shortly after I moved to Australia, um, somebody did inform me about drop bears, um, spun a very long yarn or story, 
uh, about drop bears and was about to send me off into my class to ask the rest of my classmates about this creature that I hadn't previously heard of. Uh. Um, and <laughs> that sounds like Australians. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, well, I guess we should ask you, what is a drop bear? The easiest way to explain it would be it's essentially a very vicious koala who likes to launch itself from uh, eucalyptus trees and devour unsuspecting tourists. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> I had not actually ever heard of them as being vampiric. I have heard the, I guess the very, uh, I heard that they dropped from trees and attacked people, and that was l the limit of my knowledge. So um, I thought the paper was extremely accessible. I mean, it was very mm -hmm. easily understood by this poor layman. Uh, <laughs> are we going to be able to put that in the show notes? Is it, is it okay to reprint that article, or, or can we really? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's open access, it's so open. yeah, it should be fine. Excellent. Okay, so in in the context so, of the paper, sorry, go ahead, Karen. Sorry, I was just going to say, have you never seen pictures of them at all before? No, to give you the really. idea that they're vampire-like with the big teeth and blood dripping from their fangs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I saw the teeth, but I didn't automatically uh, assume that that meant they were vampiric. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. So, no, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, is that what, so, you know, I didn't know. I, I'm ignorant, but now I'm all educated. So, <laughs> so our, our research would um, that, that this is Cat speaking. Our, our research that that we've actually conducted. Um, actually identified two separate um, variational varieties of the drop bear, um, and that was the common drop bear and the um, the vampiric one, the one that fed more commonly on blood rather than actually um, on the on the body of their um, of their prey. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's the. Do you think that's um, convergent evolution, or uh, 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 like are they split at a previous point in the species, or someone just decided to tell the story differently? What? <laughs> um, okay, so if we were to perpetuate, if we were going to perpetuate the 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 drop bear urban legend, then we would suggest that it would be. Uh, probably habitation and um, and 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 resourcefulness. So, um, if Australia gets a lot of um, drought periods, so feeding on liquid rather than um, the, than flesh and bone is actually easily more easily digestible. Um, they have less chance of actually falling into dehydration and those sorts of those sorts of things that would fall prey to an animal that was actually eating large quantities of heavily hard to digest um, foods. Um, if we were talking about it from the from the analysis of the actual urban legend, we would be inclined to say that depending on the location of the people that are of the of the orators, it would depend on the variation of drop bear that you're actually seeing being um, spoken about. Neat. So that brings up a question. What is the difference between an urban legend, a myth, and a folk tale? And where does the drop bear law fall into that mix? Okay, so yeah, I'd say there's yeah. definitely yeah, there's overlap um, between okay. Okay. those different categories. Um, but I think some of the we've actually used you know quite a well-established um, topology from um, Bascom, uh, an yeah. uh, anthropologist from the 1960s, where he's sort of divides between so myth would be something that is held as as in a sense fact um, by the culture that that myth is associated with and um, tends to be set in the remote past to be otherworldly in some sense um, and is often considered sacred. Principal characters would be non-human, whereas legends, um, again, tend to be told or retold as fact, um, occurring in a more recent past in set in the world of today and could be either secular or sacred with primarily human characters um, whereas folk tales are generally believed to be fiction and um, can be set any place any time 
secular with human or non-human characteristics. And then when we move to urban legends, um, urban legend are really contemporary variations of that legend format set in the world today, generally secular, um, but with human or non-human um, characters, characters, principal characters. Um, but also urban legends tend to be told as cautionary tales. Um, so there's the sort of, I don't know, what's a, a good example of, a, of an urban legend? I mean, the drop bear itself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I always go with the hook-handed killer. Do you have that in Australia? Sorry? The, the hook-handed killer. You know, you go on the date to the lover's lane and then, yep. yeah, that, that's, the, that's my go-to urban legend. There, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them probably, but... Yeah, and I think yeah, the you know the stopping on a on a remote highway and somebody jumps in your boot, that kind of thing. Yeah, vanishing hitchhiker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, th this is a question from my uh, my husband. He's uh, American, and um, you just mentioned cautionary tales and that uh, the drop bear is a kind of. Well, you say in the paper that it's a kind of cautionary tale. So his question is. Why do we need cautionary tales about uh, creatures in the, the Aussie bush when we've got snakes and spiders and all kinds of other scary creatures already? The belief is that um, snakes and spiders, people uh, tend to just shrug off. So Australia has, um, what is it, I think it's like 10 of the most deadly snakes in the world. Um, and for us that live here in, in Townsville, where JCU, um, where the main campus is, um, most of them actually reside in the bushland around Townsville. Mm -hmm. um, but people tend to go, oh, it's just a snake. You know, I don't need to be concerned about that. But there are a lot of other aspects of the Australian bushland regions that tend to also be overlooked. So whilst people might be afraid of snakes and spiders, they tend not to worry too much about the heat that they will be exposed to, how quickly they can become disoriented and dehydrated. So if you have this cautionary tale of this extreme violent creature that is likely to hunt you and, and kill you, people tend to then um, exhibit a little bit more caution um, or be a little bit more wary when they're actually going to traverse in, in, in these terrains. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for kids who grow up around the snakes and around the spiders, um, then, you know, if you want to stop them wandering off into the bush, I don't know, personally as an outsider, as a foreigner, I'd say the Australians are that hardcore. It takes a vampiric koala to actually scare them into being <laughs> 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 is it, I, as an outsider, uh, you know, as an American, I, 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 I'm wondering how effective is it when you tell kids this story? Do they? This has got to be for people. Is it mostly directed towards children who are not native Australians? Is it? Is it ident Like, is it? Or do you actually use it for your own kids uh, to say, "Hey, be careful of the drop bears," and maybe get them to be a little bit more cautious? How, like, how efficacious is it as a legend for protecting people? I had people recount to me of, um, you know, when I've mentioned that we've been researching this, people start telling their stories. Um, and recently, one guy was telling me about um, when he was on a scout camp and they were on a bushwalk. And one of the things that they were telling the kids on the bushwalk was that you see those scratches on the tree over there. That's from drop bears. You better stay on the trail. Um, so... <laughs> Um, I, I generally think that it, it does tend to be aimed towards the tourists. Uh, just, I don't know why. You guys just like... But teenagers, teenagers will also um, use it around campfires to try and scare younger, younger children. Um, uh, for me, I can't remember when I actually first heard about it. I'm sure I was a very small child when I first started hearing about drop bears. Um, it's just been something in the Australian culture that I've, I've known about for all of my life. Um, yeah, I could say the yeah. same. I can't actually pinpoint it at any 
actual time. I've just always known yep. about them. I think um, you're talking about what it's like for tourists versus people who've grown up in Australia. And I had a similar kind of experience when I first moved to the States in 2004. And I was in California and I went hiking. And uh, as you were saying, a lot of Australians aren't terribly scared of spiders and snakes. You grow up with them. You don't often see them. And as long as you don't disturb them, they don't disturb you. But uh, the idea of bears and big cats uh, in the States really scared the, the crap out of me. And uh, so I'm, I'm going out hiking and uh, I just came across this uh, other couple who were walking too. And I said, oh, is there anything I need to be wary of out here? And and they said, oh, yeah, the, the tree alligators, you have to watch out for them. <laughs> so I, did you come across other animals, uh, like similar cryptids in other cultures? Other countries that resemble to the the hoop snakes are Australian. Oh, the hoop snakes are Australian as well. <laughs> I forgot about them. You know, actually, we have a uh, well, we don't have them any more than you do. But the, my grandmother used to tell me about hoop snakes here in Georgia. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I, I was... some nasty I was, snakes there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know you've got so many real snakes, but I just thought it was so funny. I saw the hoops. I actually wrote a note about this to myself because I thought it was interesting. So so hoop snakes exist legendarily in Australia too. That's neat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know you had them in, in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't, but I mean, we have the well, stories. Well, you know what I mean. Have the, the, yeah, the... <laughs> and for our listeners who may not have heard of hoop snakes... At least the ones in Georgia, allegedly, if startled, the snake will grab its own tail with its mouth and then roll away from you. Um, I, I've never heard them. That, that was always been taught to me as a way of fleeing, not attacking. But you know. Okay. Yeah. So the Australian, the the Australian species of hoop snake actually attacks. So chases you down while it chases you its down while it's grasping its Th- own tail. Does it have a stinger in its tail? <laughs> I mean, I mean, just in the, from a legendary perspective. I mean, no, not come across. What? <laughs> not that we're aware of. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably enough on hoop snakes, but <laughs> no, that's a fun one. I suppose another comparable one would be like, it, not so much to the drop, but the Yowie and Bigfoot. The Yowie and Bigfoot. Well, does does Yowie? I mean, we I've heard lots in, uh, of, of cryptid stories about Yahweh, but is it also used as a beware of the Yahweh sort of boogeyman type creature? Yeah, definitely. It's also um, very prolific in um, oral indigenous, uh, Australian indigenous oral traditions. Oh, they call it the hairy man. Yeah. Neat. Have you still got uh, Tim the Yowie man? Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen him for years. So there is a monument to him at the Kilcoise Hawk. Hmm. Neat. I'm, I'm saying neat too many times, but I'll, I'll fix that in post. <laughs> oh, it's, an, it's a quaint little Americanism. <laughs> right, I'll, say, well, I'll say tidy occasionally just to, <laughs> for variety. <laughs> I was going to say that the Blake would find this one fun, but you, you have read the paper uh, already. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about how tourists and other people can protect themselves against these creatures? Um, so some of the biggest ones would be to, if you're under a collector's tree to spit upwards because that the if you're spitting upwards you'll see the drop bed, Um even if the spit comes back and smacks you in the face. Um, smearing uh, perspiration points with Vegemite is probably one of my favourite ones ever. Yeah. Um, um, wearing uh, cutlery in your hair or on your hat. Um, similar to magpies, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the others? Singing, waltzing Matilda. Yeah, talking in an Australian accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought the bit about it, uh, uh, the, the Vegemite helping give you some sort of odor defense was pretty funny. The, the, uh... And... Um, yeah, the, the, the papers that we were refer- – or the, the sources we were referring to there also suggest that um, Australians are reasonably immune to attacks by uh, drop bears because of their constant exposure from infancy through to, um, you know, throughout their life to um, Vegemite. They actually might be excreting some of those chemicals <laughs> in their sweat. 
And, and, and so Vegemite's a... What, sorry that. <laughs> so I guess um, if, if that were true, it would be uh, the number of people dead from drop bear killings would have dropped dramatically when Vegemite was invented, right? That would be... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had, I had to move here. Pre-Vegemite data. Yeah. <laughs> I had to move here because I hate the stuff, so I don't eat it. So I, I didn't have protection against drop bears. And, and now I can get I can get Tim Tams at my grocery store now. So it's like, why even go? Yeah, yeah. 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 So. I'm, I'm a I'm a Promite girl. I prefer Promite to Vegemite. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> is Promite is that like the other versions amateur? I don't understand. What is <laughs> it's a it's a vegetable extract just like Promite. Um and it's a little bit more salty, I think. Vegemite is very bitter. It's very yeasty. Vegemite, yeah. It's a rose in every cheek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vegemite's actually um main ingredient is brewer's yeast. It's a leftover brewer's yeast from the the beer production. It tasted like eating a bullion cube to me. That's. <laughs> I'm. Yeah. I'm pretty. Do you? You don't eat it as concentrated. I mean, it come. You know, you you wouldn't normally just eat it straight out of the container, though, right? You'd put it on some toast. Oh yeah, slather it on. I eat it by the spoonful. I don't know if they're actually telling the truth anymore. Thinly on toast with butter and cheese. <laughs> yeah, I could see it as a flavoring, uh, like to to accent something else. I just can't imagine deliberately, purposefully. I mean, I mean, I say I can't imagine. I've seen people do it, but it seems more like a dare thing to do. So, yeah. not really. It's it's a it's a food that most children do grow up on. Yeah. So, it, you know, there there are a few. Um, slogans i heard there um being said and yeah just the the ads on tv when you're growing up they're very iconic that's neat <laughs> what, what, so if you go to restaurants is it available this is such an important aside that we get into <laughs> maybe in a, in a coffee shop you know is it like a condiment on the table or is it something you order as part of your meal you get it with toast or something yeah yeah on toast yeah vegemite on toast you i went to one place cafe. recently and they had vegemite soup yeah. I don't know how they made it, but mm, I was interested. <laughs> There's uh, also uh, bakeries. They might yeah. put Vegemite into their bread. <laughs> Vegemite scrolls, if you've still got those. Yep. Yeah, we still do. And Cheddarmite scrolls. Well, I, mm. I, I suppose I should get back to a drop bear question. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> in the course of your research, <laughs> did you did you run anything down about where the actual legend originated? Um, there's no real origin point that we can find because I think it's so much entrenched in the oral history of Australia. Um, we have speculated that it could be um, passed on from uh, the marsupial line that was quite prevalent in Australia at the, um, before settlement and the Aboriginal peoples here would have had a, a close association with it. So that could be a possible origin, but, yeah. We would need to do um, a, a really in-depth, in um, um, what would you say, um, like investigation, yeah. yeah, archival investigation into oral, um, Indigenous oral tradition that have been recorded. Um, but there have been suggestions um, you know, made by us and by other universities like Flinders University that suggest that due to body shape, the marsupial lion could actually be connected to the the beginnings of the tales of these things. Their predation methods were very similar as well. Okay, and you uh, look at some pseudoscientific sources in your paper as well, Uh do you think that there's anyone out there who really believes in the drop bear and other people who go out hunting for them? Cryptozoology is starting to actually take off in Australia. Um, and I think drop bears are one of those things that are falling into their radar. Um, I think most Australians actually view it fairly tongue in cheek with a bit of satire. Um, and just have a bit of a laugh about it. So, yeah, um, it, it's... In yeah. saying that, though, I've been going through some uh, journals recently, and they're about 100 years old, um, where people have been trying to track these 
these entities, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Um, particularly here in North Queensland, because that's what the journals I was looking at. Okay. So when, when you started working on this paper, how did you... Um, I mean, a lot of this is online research and uh, looking at electronic sources. How does one tackle doing an academic study on something that on the face of it is fantastic and probably fictional? I think that the narrative analysis was was a big part of that, um, was to just look from, you know, from an anthropological perspective at how people are telling and retelling this story um, and what some of the commonalities are between different retellings and um, how it's co-constructed, I think, as well, um, by groups of different people adding, um, embellishing, um, if you like, on different aspects of the story. And... Um, talking just to people um, around the place about their experiences as soon as you mention some of those things that as soon as you mention it everyone's got a story um, so some of that but it was primarily that we were looking at sort of online iterations of this myth because or this um, urban legend sorry because this is the primary means now I think um, arguably yeah, yeah. of spreading it and of spreading it beyond Australia. Um, it's, it's definitely come out there and, and now serves almost, I tend to use it as a bit of a cautionary tale in terms of information literacy um, and being sceptical about information that you find on the internet. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so it, it's definitely moved into the online domain um, pretty substantially um, and that's why that was sort of our primary means of, of investigating this and from there we sort of entered you know down these rabbit holes of um, looking at the marsupial lion and um, the archaeological records um, and the extent to which they could support or this myth or otherwise. So it's interesting you would mention inter information literacy I think um that's a common theme we talk about on the show quite a bit is uh, the importance of critical thinking and questioning, you know, does this make any kind of sense in a real world? You know, is there a natural explanation for it? That sort of thing. Uh, is, is, um, is online credulity a big problem in Australia? Um, I think as much, as much as it is anywhere. And um, I don't think widespread there. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Um, and I think that, that one of the interesting things about the drop bear and the, some of the sources that we've used in the article itself is that they 
present this sense of legitimacy. Um, so you look at you know, everything I say to my students always, you know, you look at the article, everything points to yes, that this is a legitimate source. Um, and, you know, that there's actual research that's gone into this. But that's no excuse for not actually critically engaging with the content of that source. Just because all signs point to yes doesn't mean that the information is necessarily reliable and that you do need to use your own sort of critical thinking um, researching, attempting to verify information that you find and not just accepting things at face value. And I think that, that that's a lesson that the drop bear teaches quite well. There's a lot of things that are done with a straight face um, that are jokes. And uh, that, that sort of thing happens here too, where people, you know, you, it's impossible to tell satire from, uh, you know, reality. I guess they was it Pose Law, I think, online. Um, and uh, I find that fascinating because uh, it, it, this is a nice, I guess it might be considered a nice safe topic. I, I would suspect most people don't have a passionate belief in this, but it's a good way to examine these issues with uh, maybe giving a people an opportunity to think about those questions on a topic they're not so invested in. That's neat. It definitely, yes, it serves, serves that purpose well, I think, mm-hmm. um, particularly because every every semester when I present this article to students, people will look at it, not the one that we wrote, but the Australian geographer one about tracking drop bears using satellite technology. Mm-hmm. It's presented as a legitimate academic source. Um, you've got websites like, um, what was it, Australian Geographic, Australian Geographic and the Australian Museum. Museum. Um, that are presenting the drop bear narrative. Um, and yeah, I think that every semester we get people that say, you know, they, they just look at the source and they go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's legitimate. Um, and yeah, and then we have a bit of a, a chat about whether or not we need to be scared of drop bears. <laughs> you, you'll find that here too, that there might be a, a particular claim about a, a haunting or uh, just some kind of paranormal activity or cryptids that that exist somewhere uh, that they might be it might be mentioned somewhere in a legitimate source and then just as time goes by over the decades uh, it, that particular source is lost to a lot of people and that all all that's left is the idea that this was somehow researched or treated in a legitimate source and uh, so that gives a kind of credence to it for a lot Ooh, of people I think good point yeah. Well, we, you and I were talking about that. Do you remember recently? Yeah, it, it comes. This I was thinking about the April Fool's thing. People publish things on April Fool's Day here in America. It sounds like they do that there too in Oz. But is, yeah, is it okay to call it Oz? Is that real? I don't know. Oh. If <laughs> You, you, you may just this once. <laughs> but I, I noticed that um, exactly that. That yes, it gets published in a legitimate source, but it is on April first, and you lose that context, and suddenly it seems like these serious academic sources are are, are giving serious credence to something that they really actually don't care for, or don't mm-hmm. believe in, or support. Mm-hmm. And from memory, I don't know if this is still the same, but uh, it's not in the States anyway, that uh, if you do something to someone on April Fool's Day and you do it after midday, noon, 12 o'clock, then suddenly you're the fool. I don't know if it's still that way yeah, back home, but, but yeah. it's not that way here. You can pull pranks all day long. All day long. <laughs> <laughs> and you had another question about kind of pranking, didn't you? And I did. I, I was wondering, do people in America, there's this, this terrible trick where you take people on what they call a snipe hunt. And you basically try to get people to go who've never gone hunting before to go out in the woods. And they take like, it's just a trick, basically, to get someone to go out in the woods, and then you leave. And so you basically abandon them in the woods. It's not a nice thing. But I was like that episode of Cheers. uh, Oh man, I wish my (laughs) wife was on the the call. She loves Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) She can really tell a Cheers story. It's like you're there watching the show, only it's just her telling you. So. But I was wondering, do people do that with drop bears? Do they do they use it as a form of hazing? Probably not. Um, just because the fact that Australian bush is, uh, especially if you're not familiar with it, can be quite a dangerous environment to be in. Um, yes and no. Um, 
when I, I was in the in the army cadets for a while, and they often um, used to use that for new recruits on their first bivouac. That was wow. one thing. So they had a pre-sliced up um, hoochie, and overnight, yeah, <clears throat> there would be a lot of movement. The young ones, obviously, um, new recruits, not familiar with the environment, don't really know what's going on. Uh, next morning over breakfast and somebody's been attacked by a drop bear. Here's the evidence. There's there's the torn up hoochie with the, you know, the paint on it looks like blood, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, I have, I've seen it in controlled environments. environments. But not just like, oh, you know, we meet some, you know, German backpackers and they're going off camping somewhere and you go, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'll, I can take you to this place and then haze them with the, with the drop bear tail. Like they tell them about drop bears and to be aware of them, but I, I've never heard of people actually taking yeah. a, a random person who, who isn't <coughs> familiar with the area into the bush and just leaving them there. Yeah or doing a fake drop bear attack? I think that my own experience, um, I don't know if it was so much a form of hazing, but the, the fellow who first told me this drop bear story um, and spent quite a long time convincing me, I was very new in Australia and there are some very strange animals here. Um, you know, we've, we've got um, mollusks that shoot arrows. So I was quite open to the possibility of, of these, you know, vampiric koalas. And I think his main aim was to get me to go and ask another person whether or not this was true. Mm -hmm. um, and it was basically just, yeah, just a wind up to try and suck me in and see if I'd go and take it and ask yeah. somebody and make a fool out of myself. Mm -hmm. um, so I think to that extent, maybe, but no, you definitely don't want to be leading people out into the bush. That's yeah. probably not a good idea. That's funny. Drop bears on that. Unless it's the day before their wedding. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that reminds me, when I was in the Navy, they used to do tricks like that where they would they would tell you to go somewhere on the ship and find some thing. For example, they would say, go get uh, uh, two quarts of ID10T oil. And the, the, of course, the joke is you, you, re you remember ID10T and then you don't know what it means. You go around and ask. Mm -hmm. But if someone writes it down, you can see that it sort of spells out idiot, right? Mm -hmm. So, which, but, but, but the fun thing was I realized that this was ridiculous but pretended to not understand. So they would say, go find some mighty 10 tea oil. And instead, I would go back to bed. And then I'd come back like an hour and a half later, pretend to be haggard <laughs> and worn out from walking all over the ship. And they said they didn't have any, and they sent me to another place. And actually, I just slept. It was great. That's clever. <laughs> Ingenious. I'm assuming that the statute of limitations for that is over. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I wanted to ask uh, about drop bears as well. Um, you know, we, we treat a lot of monsters and, and claims on this show. And uh, occasionally we hear about creatures like Bigfoot, alleged creatures that have paranormal abilities, that they can disappear and reappear somewhere else and just various things like that. Are there any paranormal claims about drop bears? Not that we've come across. <clears throat> Not that we've come across. Like okay. there is... Um, a uh, folklorist, um, ex-military folklorist that we refer to in our um, in our article, um, Ian Coates, who claims to have um, gotten some oral histories from um, former military men from the war who claim that there used to be what they call a mammoth drop bear that actually stood five metres tall. Um, and... The other claims were that the military, as the Australian military, in particular the SAS, actually train in drop bear um, habitats so that they actually become familiar with how to avoid them, um, used to fighting them, etc. Um, but as for the drop bears themselves having any particular supernatural being, aside from being very good at uh, camouflaging themselves and, and themselves launching from themselves from trees, none that we are aware of. Okay. Yeah, I, I noticed in the paper you said drop bear scat instead of drop bear dropping because I, I thought I, that might get confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
there's the name for the show anyway. Yeah, <laughs> Drop Bear Stat or Drop Bear Dropping. Drop Bear Dropping's all right. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how how are uh, Drop Bear populations faring compared to Bunyip populations with all the uh, environmental changes that have been going on? I feel like they're um, doing a lot better because Bunyip, uh, in a particular place, whereas Drop Bear is more widespread. Yeah, um, and Bunyips tend to. Uh, their, hab- their habitat tends to be around um, lagoons and, um, and and billabongs, which, with uh, with a recent you know extended dry periods that Australia is now experiencing, those are starting to actually dry up. Um, drop bears tend to be a little more um, resourceful um, and um, are known to actually, you know, um, what is it, hoard. They're known to actually hoard their rum kills. <laughs> I, I feel like I should tell the listeners, if they're not familiar with the bunyip, that it's another folklore animal of Australia. Uh, uh, but um, a recent episode of the Folklore Podcast did this amazing uh, coverage of, of bunyip legends uh, that I really uh, highly recommend. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. We should do a show ourselves. Well, we should, but that was so good. Maybe we should just... Anyway, it's not important. (laughs) And steal their questions. So I have to admit, I grew up in Sydney on the northern beaches and didn't really hear anything about drop bears when I was growing up. So are there particular areas that they're known to exist in? Um. So I think that actually got removed from the article. So riparian um, habitats tend to be the most common areas for um, for drop bears. So that's uh, areas around um, uh, water sources. Um, and right up the east coast, I'm surprised that uh, from the northern beaches of um, uh, of Sydney that you've never heard of them because according to our um, – our map, our distribution map, um, you guys uh, have quite a dense population of um, drop bears. Yeah, yeah but they, I, they camouflage so well is the thing. That must have been it, yeah. I thought <laughs> <laughs> it must maybe have been Australian accents like, deterring yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, maybe Chrome works as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, I lived in uh, Armadale for a little while, which is kind of halfway between for mm. listeners between Sydney and Brisbane. And uh, we had a lot of koalas that lived in trees around there just naturally. And uh, some of them would get quite fierce, especially at night, if mm, you're just yeah. walking through the campus or something and uh, and they growl at you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people see koalas as being cute, cuddly, furry things uh, <laughs> and not as dangerous as they, they really are. Can you tell us a little bit about real koalas? I feel like wet koalas are probably one of the most terrifying things you'll ever <laughs> see in your life. <laughs> um, look, I have actually witnessed someone be um, quite aggressively attacked by a, um, a male koala. They were in a handling session at one of our zoos and had been previously holding a younger male koala and then went to get their photo taken with this other male and because they already had the scent of um, another male koala on them he just attacked (laughs) yeah so look they can be they can be quite aggressive and you know it's like all wild animals they are actually wild animals so if you saw one you know on the on the ground near a tree you certainly wouldn't go and start handling it its first instinct would be to attack you right and the like, mothers are very protective of their children as well. They certainly are, yeah, very much so. And, and the, the long claws and the, the sharp teeth would be a bit of a giveaway of not to touch this animal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just with the fluffy ears, they just look so soft and certainly uh, in the zoo. <laughs> That's how they lure you in. <laughs> <laughs> so don't pick up the koalas. I've, I've heard the kangaroos aren't very nice either, is it? No, they will they will chase you down as well. <laughs> there's there's quite a few YouTube videos of people on golf courses being chased by kangaroos in golf carts. Are, are there any native domesticated uh, Australian animals or are those all imported? Native domesticated? 
Uh, reptiles and lizards. I mean, yeah, people have reptiles and lizards. Um, yeah, people have pet crocodiles. Uh, people have pet crocodiles. Yeah, but I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure I'd call that domesticated. No, <laughs> 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 I, I don't know that. The aside from aside from um, avian, so you know, galahs and cockatoos and and cockatoos. Nobody tends to try and domesticate koalas, kangaroos. Possibly because they know it's not going to end well. Yeah. Well. Wallabies are quite cute. Yeah, I think a lot of them, like wombats, are very cute when they're young and and it just gets to a point where they need to be out in their native habitat and um, just can't really be around humans anymore. They turn quite aggressive. Yeah. And they can grow quite large. Five meters is really big. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was my favorite graphic in the uh, in the article. <laughs> oh yeah, and there are some great pictures throughout the article. I highly recommend all our listeners go and read it. So, did you have any other questions, or do you want to? No, I I, I really enjoyed the paper. I, I I liked reading about it. I liked learning things about the legend that I hadn't learned before. I also liked uh, the way you're approaching this uh, fanciful topic with a scientific approach. It was really fun. Yeah, and I, I hope our listeners like it. So yeah. Oh, they, they will. They will. I've been asking for it for, for years. Um, so we just have a, a final question that we like to ask all of our guests. And um, so I'd like to ask you guys now, what are your, what's your favorite monster? If you can each respond to that. Probably the zombies. Oh, classic. Really, really <laughs> yeah, the first horror film um, that I ever saw was Night of the Living Dead. And I was probably far, far too young to be watching that movie. Um, <laughs> certainly made an impression um but aside from that i've got to say the other one is bigfoot because when my family first got the internet back in the early 90s um my dad told me you know hey we've got this great resource you can you know you've got access to all the information in the world the first thing that i actually tried to search for was is bigfoot real so it's kind of a toss-up between between those two um mine would have to be. I don't know if I'd really call it a monster, but mine would be hands down mermaids. Um, sure, I was yeah. originally from Port Macquarie, so it was like at that point of time, it was a very beachy town, so all I did was surf and weeboard. Um, and now I scuba dive. I have blue green hair. It's, it's kind of my spirit animal. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> Actually, I would have to say that I've always been uh, fascinated with um, with the tales that surround drop bears. Um, and I think think that sort of stems from this complete obsession that I had as a child and a teenager with were animals um yeah and all variations of them so I guess there was a part of me throughout my my teen years where I wondered if perhaps this drop bear was actually the were version of a koala or or some, something else, yeah. So I think that's how the drop bear came into my imagination um, and sort of sat there for a long time, but definitely definitely wears. So I'm, yeah, I'm very partial to all wear creatures. Me too. I, I love to- wear koala. <laughs> if I find one, I'll make sure to let you guys know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please do. That would be neat. I I, I just love the idea of, of transformation. It, it's always been um, uh, for me as well. Just where creatures are just so interesting. The idea of you know uh, transformation. Just the idea of something changing yeah. into something else completely different. And of course, from a, from a gamer's perspective, there's always these nice uh, stat uh, bonuses they give you. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, I, I do, I do think they're very neat. You remind me though uh, the mermaid comment um, or selection. Uh, mermaids uh, have been sort of uh, in our uh, sites fairly recently because of the uh, fake documentaries that they've done for um, Animal Planet, <laughs> and uh, that kind of falls along these same lines. Only I, I don't believe that Animal Planet was doing a good job of uh, letting people know it wasn't real, you know. So we I think mm-hmm. it confused a lot of people who think the government's now hiding mermaids. So. <laughs> well, I think that was sort of the point. Of, like, it was a mockumentary, so it was delivering this information in an almost scientific, credible way. It's kind mm-hmm. of back to what I was saying earlier. Oh, you know, in fact, I, th- I I didn't really have a problem with it except for it being on Animal Planet. If it had been on the Sci-Fi Channel, <laughs> it would have been fine, right? That would have, that would have been enough for me, you know. 
Um, yep. So, anyway, I thank you so much for spending some time with us and uh, and for telling us yeah. about this creature. Thank you so thank much. You. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Rian Morgan, Catherine Livingstone, and Felice Goldfinch, authors of a fun academic paper titled Man-Eating Teddy Bears of the Scrub, Exploring the Australian Drop Bear Urban Legend. As you can tell from the title, drop bears are not real monsters, but this paper was a fun look at a very popular legendary creature. As we mentioned, a link to the paper and other supplementary information is in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. A quick reminder, I'll be giving a talk about science and monsters at the very first CryptidCon in Kentucky this September. Here's a little promo for that. Attention all listeners. We are hearing reports from all over Kentucky that something big is happening. Strange creatures have been seen roaming the hills, goblins emerging from caves, a goat man was spotted near a train trestle. There have even been sightings of an eight-foot-tall humanoid creature covered in hair. What's going on in the Bluegrass State? To find out, you will need to go to CryptidCon, Bigfoot Monsters and Legends. Head on over to Frankfort, Kentucky, September 9th and 10th. At CryptidCon, you will meet Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot. Nick Groff from Paranormal Lockdown and Ghost of Shepherdstown. You'll learn from top researchers in the field, Warren Coleman, Lyle Blackburn, Stan Gordon, and many more. CryptidCon will be an action-packed weekend with vendors, seminars, and even a Bigfoot hunt. Go to www.cryptidcon.com for all the details. And for a more skeptic-themed convention, you're not likely to find more high-powered voices of science and critical thinking than those meeting up in October for CSICon 2017. Hi, my name is Barry Carr, and I'm here with Tom Flynn and Jim Wonderdown talking about the uh, upcoming SciCon conference this October in Las Vegas. So, uh, Tom, Jim, what are you, uh, you looking forward to coming out to SciCon? I cannot wait. I will be hosting the disco party on Saturday night, and it's, is it a zombie disco party? If you want to dress as a zombie, that's fine. That's what we're billing it as, a costume party, so come as you like. Yeah, and uh, we're actually going to have cash prizes and uh, dancing and drinks. Is it true that the grand prize will be a big bowl of brains? Well, even the brain and the zombies aside, this is a uh, conference with some heavyweights in the skeptical community. For instance, we have Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, James Randi, Eugenie Scott. The list actually goes on and on. We have almost 40 speakers coming or more. We have workshops, of course, entertainment, as we mentioned. Anything you particularly want to see? Uh, my dear friend uh, Richard Wiseman will be here, also from the U.K., author of Quirkology. I can't wait to see him. And don't forget Richard Saunders from Australia. It's going to be Richard's busting out all over. It's the richness of Richard's. <laughs> it absolutely yeah. is. I'll be gambling, too, at some point. No, no, skeptics weekend. do not gamble. I, skeptics well, don't gamble. I we do. know the odds. We I don't have, do if, that. If my experience last year is any indication, no, no. skeptics do not gamble, skeptics 
win. I have a Some system. Skeptics. Harry, I have a system that is guaranteed to win. I'm going to grab a stack of chips and run. <laughs> there That's you go. Yeah. Okay, the uh, New Yorker writer Maria Konnikova is going to be oh, receiving yeah. the uh, Ballas Award for Critical Thinking for her most recent book. Right, The Confidence Game. Yeah, Maria was a speaker last year. She spoke about The Confidence Game last year. This year, she's talking about her new book, which is about luck. Ah, so what, what better? What right? better, what better than talk about yeah. luck? She'll vindicate me. The Skeptical Toolbox people will be there. Ray Hyman, Jim Elcock, Harriet Hall. And speaking of skeptics groups that are coming, we have the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The whole uh, the whole show, the whole crew is coming this year. It seems a little skeptic heavy, don't you think, this conference? This is the Skeptics Heavyweight event of the year. It so, does yes. not get better than it this. It does not get better than this. So we hope to see you there. It's uh, October 26th to the 29th at the Excalibur Hotel. It's the, the one that looks like the big castle. You know, you'll see it when you fly into the airport you see the towers rapunzel's there it's the one that looks like the walt disney opium dream so come check us out in las vegas thanks again for all your positive reviews on itunes they're the best way to help other people find our show and we appreciate them very much it only takes a moment of your time but those reviews are really the most reliable way to bring in new listeners monster talk theme music is by peach stealing monkeys thanks again for listening Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.